So the Buddha presents a very optimistic picture for the cultivation of our mind and our heart. And he, um, he assures us in many different ways that the task is possible, <laughs> that there, there aren't uh, insurmountable barriers in the mind and that there's a, a process by which we can engage with our experience and eventually uh, let go of the, any tendency to suffer when experience arises as it does. And it's not so much that we have to completely change what the experience is as we change instead the, uh, the way the experience is met or uh, somehow how we get from this moment to the next. So I wanted to uh, talk about the cultivation of the mind and the quality, some of the quality of this mind that we're cultivating, uh, how it is that we can look upon our mind in order to make the process easier And I want to use some teachings that uh, were part of a treat I was just on. So I apologize if any of you have heard this before. Um, and also bring in uh, some other qualities that I am feeling like um, maybe, aren't, maybe aren't pointed out enough in our scene. So the way that we work with the mind is the domain of the sixth step of the Eightfold Path, which is wise effort. And we have uh, a need to cultivate things in the mind, to let go of things, um, to get our mind into a state where it will be able to see the truth. It's really not that we have to do the actual awakening ourselves. It's actually not possible to do that through an act of will. And so there's this intriguing step on the path called wise effort, where we make effort to set the mind up, to set up the conditions um, after which the mind can evolve in certain ways. On this retreat, this uh, there are four wise efforts, and they were summarized into one statement, which is, don't make it worse, which I thought was pretty good. There is a caveat, and, it's, and if you can make it better, um, 
but the key is really don't make it worse. And the, the process of understanding the cult that is the evolution of our view is that we learn more and more precisely how it is that we make things worse. We actually don't know that at the beginning. That's why we, our mind is such a mess when we sit down and start meditating. And usually the first insight people have is that their mind is out of control. Um, that's a, we think it's a bad news, but it's actually the first genuine insight <laughs> is that this is how it is in the mind and this is how it's been my whole life. Oh my gosh. And sometimes people turn around and run out of the meditation hall at that point, but that's not very wise because having seen that, there is actually something that you can do. And so we start by not making it worse. Um, so the, the steps of the path, that uh, one step that, of the um, part of wise effort that relates to not making it worse is that we prevent um, unwholesome states or unskillful states from arising in the mind. And if they're not there, we don't want them to come. That would make it worse. So we actually make effort that such states don't come if they're not there. And this involves you know, knowing what would be worse and finding ways to steer around that. So as an example, I sometimes use if I am driving on the road and there's a driver that I'm finding irritating, who's going too fast or is weaving around or is going too slow or whatever it is, um, if I have some opportunity to pass that car in the future, I have a policy that I don't look at the driver as I'm going by. I don't want to know, you know, I don't know what would arise in my mind. Of course, hopefully I let go of my aversion or at least I'm mindful of it at that moment. And, but you never know, it might be lurking there. And if I saw the driver, I might have a judgment about that person or if my mind were particularly unskillful about the age or the gender or some other quality of that person, and I don't want to do that. That is not a skillful thought to have passed through my mind, so I just don't look. This is a method of practicing avoiding or preventing. And then we also want that if the mind already has some unskillful state in it. It's already gotten wound up in something and is irritated or greedy or envious. Uh, we would like to let go of that. This is a way to make things slightly better, is if we didn't have some quality that's harming us, essentially, we'll make things easier for our own heart and we'll also um, help others, you know, when others are not in danger of the fact that our mind is in a poor state and we might say something or do something that isn't skillful for them. And then the third wise effort is to cultivate wholesome qualities that are not there yet. So we're not only working with the unwholesome qualities in the mind, but what about 
good qualities like um, patience or generosity or love or um, wisdom, we make some effort for those to become more common in the mind. Meditation is the classic example. You're cultivating mindfulness. That's very skillful, very wholesome. And, you know, it's not a continual thing where you just turn on the tap and it's there, but we work at it. You know, we sit, the mind wanders off, we bring it back, we start again with mindfulness. This is cultivation, um, that aspect of it. And we can also do practices that cultivate love or um, all kinds of other things that are going to help us bring to mind things that might not be there. Sticky note practice, that's one of my favorites. Little sticky notes around the house that remind me of the qualities that would be helpful. And then finally, there's um, maintaining. So if a wholesome state is already present, we would like that to continue. And so we, um, this mostly consists of appreciating that it's there and uh, not holding on to it so that that would make it worse. If we try to grasp onto um, a good state that's there, it, it will actually degrade it. So that's um, a challenging one for us, is to be able to maintain wholesome qualities that are there, because the act of clinging to them uh, adds clinging to the mind. It makes it worse. So we want to be able to just stay with things. So here's an interesting link that this retreat provided is that we could, because um, usually effort is kind of a not that interesting teaching for people. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, make effort to do this, make effort not to do that. You know, it reminds us of elementary school where we were told to do this and not do that and to make effort to sit still and I mean, I'm mocking it a little bit, but usually effort is not the most exciting quality for people because it can bring up um, also concerns about over-efforting. We're not very good at making effort here in the West. We tend to kind of go overboard, tell somebody to make effort, and we're like, yeah, no, strive. Now, that's true that the texts are all about striving. They have a lot of that language, but my guess is it's because... Um, that was needed. Maybe folks at that time weren't really into the striving. They weren't, they weren't going to harm themselves the way we do. And so they had to have kind of a fire lit under them. This is my interpretation. Um, but for us, usually for people here, uh, teachers are very careful about using words like strive um, because we're, we've tied ourselves up so much. People arrive so wound up, so tense, so tight so over-efforted that it's mostly about the relaxation <laughs> at the beginning of practice. So the question is, how can we make effort in a skillful way? You know, making effort itself <laughs> should not bring up unwholesome qualities like pushing, straining, aversion, tightening down, hating ourselves, judging ourselves. So some of those skillful qualities are the heart qualities the Brahma Viharas. Um, for those of you who have, may not have heard the term, this refers to four mature emotions that we cultivate during practice. Um, the quality of goodwill, you know, simple 
care and friendliness, which is metta, the quality of compassion, um, karuna, the quality of appreciative joy or empathetic joy, of taking joy in the good, either in ourselves or in others, a skill that we need to learn, and that's mudita. And then um, equanimity, the balance of mind that is uh, really deeply okay with how things are. These are beautiful um, emotions that are non-personal. They are not really linked to our specific story. They don't have to be specific to the people that we love only. We can cultivate them for any being. And they're, um, they're through and through, they're wholesome. They do nothing but enhance the heart and bring us joy and beauty in our lives. And so we could link these qualities to the efforts. And the suggestion on this retreat is that there's kind of a mapping, which I found helpful actually, to evoke that quality along with making that kind of effort. So the effort to prevent unwholesome states from arising is linked to loving-kindness, to goodwill, our simple wish for happiness. If we want to be happy, we don't want to be generating unskillful states. It's quite simple. And so out of our love for ourselves and out of our love for those around us, our friendliness, um, we would try not to cultivate uh, states like that. And so... We can link metta, the beautiful quality of connecting, basic connecting to people, to um, the prevention of unskillful states. And then if an unskillful state is there, we are suffering, actually, because of its of it being there. And so the quality of abandoning that can, can go with the quality of karuna, of compassion, out of compassion, we let go of the suffering that's related to having a mind that's full of envy or greed or anger or fear. Out of compassion for ourselves, we don't want to be maintaining a state like that. So we find a way to abandon it. Easier said than done. You know, we have strong habits toward these um, unskillful qualities. That's why we've been brought to the practice center. <laughs> essentially. But it's very skillful to um, have the compassion to want to let go of those qualities. So in a sense, walking the path of wisdom is a very compassionate act that we do. Walking the Eightfold Path is very compassionate. And then the cultivation of skillful, wholesome qualities can be linked to appreciative joy because we appreciate the qualities that we're trying to bring in. Now, some of those qualities are the Brahma Viharas themselves, so this is where we would be generating those. But often, when people start working on wise effort, I know this was true for me, is I got to the cultivation idea, and as I thought about it and engaged with it, I wondered, you know, why is it that I maybe don't do as much of this, why is it sort of formal metta practice or mindfulness practice? But, you know, I don't generally walk around trying to bring in particular qualities. 
And it's often because we've just forgotten about them. We haven't appreciated them sufficiently. <coughs> you know, we don't see that um, any moment is an opportunity to practice. I think this is a lot of what cultivation comes down to is, you know, you're standing in line in the grocery store, you have five minutes, do you pull out your cell phone and check your email and just, you know, immerse yourself in some world mindlessly and rattle off a couple messages and then it's your turn? Or if you have the five minutes, do you offer meta to the people in line? Maybe you have to do your email, I don't know, but, um, you know, there are all kinds of opportunities throughout the day to cultivate if we appreciate that when we make little efforts throughout the day to bring up wholesome states, it has a cumulative effect. We get to the end of the day and we actually feel better about how things have gone. Another way that we can cultivate is at the end of the day, we can review. Um, and specifically re review with the idea of appreciating what it was that we did that was skillful. Because every day we do things that are skillful and we don't often take the time to appreciate them because sometimes we've been told, oh, that's kind of self-centered and we shouldn't you know, just sit and think about all of our good qualities. But actually you should sit and think about all of your good qualities, not while you're meditating for long periods of time, but it is skillful to reflect on that. And so this quality of appreciating uh, our own good qualities at least um, can be done at the end of the day. Think of three things that were helpful that you did and then just be happy about that. That actually helps to bring them up again in the future. And we can appreciate the good qualities of others. There's a sutta that says um, that one quality, one thing you should look for in your friends is qualities that you want to emulate. So you should have friends that have good qualities and then you should do, like if somebody is more generous than you are, you should emulate their generosity. And maybe another friend is a little bit wiser, and so you hang out with them in order to learn about wisdom and emulate their wisdom. So this is appreciation of these qualities in others, and that helps grow them in us. It helps cultivate them in us. So this is a very clear link between appreciation and cultivation. There's even in the just the regular secular world the phrase, what we appreciate appreciates. And it's true. And then the maintaining, the one that's left, is going with uh, equanimity. And that one's interesting. I set it up a little bit when I described it. Because maintaining really requires that we do very little with a, with a good state. And uh, we need to know that it's there, of course. But... Almost anything we do um, besides simply stay mindful of and fully enter into, you know, fully experience a wholesome state that's there, almost anything else we do with it is going to degrade it a little bit. If we try to push at it, poke it, manipulate it, prop it up, um, that tends to kind of add a little bit of self or striving or um, clinging or craving to the state. And so mostly what we want to do to maintain is be very open and just um, settled with the fact that it's there and okay with it when it goes, because it will. These states are conditioned. We can't get to a good state and then maintain it forever. It's not possible. 
And so um, having equanimity is a great way to actually um, enhance in a, in a subtle way the, the good state that's there without clinging to it. I also find that this linking of the effort and the Brahma-viharas um, kind of corrects, I found on the retreat, it corrects both of them in that there are distortions that can occur in the cultivation of the Brahma-viharas where they become a little bit sentimental or overly personal. Um, and that's okay, that will correct itself over time but we can get a little mushy in sometimes, um, or we can generate their near enemies, like we can generate attachment instead of metta. We can generate indifference instead of equanimity. You know, each one of them has a quality that's similar, but not quite it. And so if we're applying also the quality of the awareness of the four right efforts, we'll be able to see that there's maybe an unskillful quality coming in if we're cultivating these Brahma-viharas um, and also find ways to, uh, you know, to help cultivate them through the effort. So the effort keeps the heart qualities from becoming sentimental, personal, or degrading into their near enemies. And then the Brahma-viharas in turn soften the effort so that it's not this counterproductive striving. The heart qualities are so beautiful and soft and tender. They really bring a, a beauty to the heart. And combining that with effort makes the effort so much sweeter. Makes it um, effective and not, not overdone. So if it's interesting to you, you might see if there are links in the way that I described between the heart qualities and the four wise efforts. I want to shift course slightly in also talking about a quality of the mind and heart that I think is not emphasized enough sometimes in our tradition. So I'm going to bring in another another structure, Nassim Taleb defines three kinds of things in terms of how, how they respond. The first is things that are fragile. So these would be things like a china teacup. You know, they can, they can actually break and you don't get them back to the state that they were in before they broke. These things are fragile. And then there are things that are resilient. So something like a plastic cup instead of a china teacup would be something that's more resilient or robust. And those are things that um, stay the same when they are stressed in some way. They don't break, um, but they pretty much stay the same, maintain. I mean, they do eventually wear out, but they're, they're robust against change in a sense. But that's not the only two kinds of things there are. He also says, what about things that actually get stronger from stress? We don't have a word for this in English. Um, so he created the word anti-fragile, which I like. 
anti-fragile. So these are things that actually grow when stressed or they grow from adversity and they might get weak or wither without any challenge. These things are anti-fragile. And these are things like people (laughs) under the right conditions. Living systems can have the quality of anti-fragility in a way that material objects don't really. So the mind and the heart are anti-fragile. This is something that we're not often told, but it's in the teachings. Of course, the Buddha didn't use language like that. But the Four Noble Truths assert this. They assert that by directing the mind to come in contact with suffering will provide what it needs to walk the path to freedom. And you're guaranteed that if you turn away from suffering, you don't engage with it, you avoid it, you deny it, you react against it, uh, you can't walk the path. The heart doesn't get stronger. I don't think there's any other way to strengthen the mind than to open to suffering. That doesn't mean you open to all of it all at once, throw yourself into it. That's not wise effort. (laughs) But... um, Absolutely, we need to turn toward our suffering, and that's a lot of what we practice on the cushion and in our daily life practice. How can I open to this? Because the mind is anti-fragile. This is what's going to help it grow. In the first discourse that the Buddha gave, the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, he says that um, two different paths, namely the path of sensual indulgence and the path of self-mortification, are both ineffective, and he has a number of adjectives that he used to describe each one, and they're both described with this word, anatta samhito, which means, literally means, possessed of non-benefit. So sensual indulgence and self-mortification are both possessed of non-benefit, and I find it interesting, some translators translate this as unbeneficial, But some translators translated it as unprofitable, which I find interesting. You know, it's inherently possessed of non-benefit. So if you do it, you will inherently uh, degrade. And then, in contrast, the Eightfold Path is presented as the middle way between these, which is a contrast to both of them and is the opposite of both of them. So that means, and I've heard this said also from different translators, that Walking the path is profitable. It's profitable. Inherently possessed of benefit. And so we can set aside any concerns you might have about modern capitalism, which the Buddha didn't know anything about, and consider what the word profitable means, or the word unprofitable. The word Unprofitable means you put in a certain amount, you invest a certain amount, and you get less out. It was unprofitable. (laughs) Profitable means you invest a certain amount, say a certain amount of effort, and you get more out. You end up wealthier compared to what you put in. This is what happens on the path. 
So we do the practices, we make the effort, we engage the qualities, we do the practices that we're told, and we get back more than we put in. It brings us profit. And so in particular, when we engage with suffering, as we're asked to do in personal truth to understand suffering, we receive from that growth in the qualities that help us move along the path. You may notice this. You may notice, for example, that people who have been practicing for a long time have a certain strength, a certain presence, a certain bearing, right? You see this in people that are long-time deep practitioners. When I first started attending a sitting group, the very first night that I went and I was I didn't even know what a meditation group was going to be like, but I bravely showed up, and there were these people there. And what I remember about them um, was that I, f- I had the impression that they were very comfortable with who they were. And I think I noticed that because at that time I wasn't particularly comfortable with who I was. And so I wanted that. They had just had a certain assurance to them or something. I could see it. I couldn't really say what it was. But this is the slow buildup of profit over time that comes from practicing mindfulness and doing the path. There's a prayer that's said by Thai monks, modern Thai monks, um, that asks for appropriate challenges, which I think is great. They pray for appropriate challenges. So they want to have difficulties on their path that are tough enough to strengthen them without being so tough that they can't learn from them. You know, of course we don't wish for things that are severely harmful and are going to bring a lot of pain and suffering such that we can't even be mindful of what's going on. You know, we wouldn't or put ourselves in extreme danger. We wouldn't do that. But um, if everything is really smooth, you don't learn as much. <laughs> If you're rowing across the lake, you'll get stronger if the lake's a little choppy than if the lake is totally smooth. And that's how it goes. That's how it goes. This is an interesting quote from, at least I found it interesting, um, that was given at a, as, a, as a part of a graduation speech for middle school kids, actually. The speaker says, from time to time in the years to come, I hope you will be treated unfairly so that you will come to know the value of justice. I hope that you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. I'm sorry to say, but I hope you will be lonely from time to time so that you don't take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck, again, just from time to time so that you will understand the role of chance in life and understand that your success is not completely deserved and that the failure of others is also not completely deserved either. I hope you'll be ignored so that you know the importance of listening to others, and I hope you have just enough pain to learn compassion. Whether I wish these things or not, they're going to happen, and whether you benefit from them or not, will depend upon your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. What an interesting thing to say to graduating students. 
I don't think we should literally wish that people feel these things. That's not much meta in that necessarily. But he's making a point. He's making a point of wisdom. Um, so one secret to walking the path well, to making wise effort well, is to actually seek out appropriate challenges. To do what is hard and grow from it. You'll have to do what's hard anyway, frankly. <laughs> right? So it might as well, we might as well take it on voluntarily. And of course, there's the caveat that we don't do things that are going to bring severe harm, put ourselves or others in severe danger. Um, but there is a certain art to challenging ourselves. When we do so with an attitude of love, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity, then we can step right into the craziness of our mind and meet it with these selfless forms of love. And then, in that case, we will be able to learn and grow from the dukkha that we find in our heart. You can be mindful of anything, actually. There is nothing that is outside the possible scope of Mindfulness, no experience, that is. So this is very good news. Um, this is from Marcia Rose. All you ever encounter is your own mind. When you see this, the heart can start to relax. Truly, there is nothing to fear. Whatever you take on, all you'll encounter is your own mind. And there's nothing in your mind that can't be known eventually, with enough strength of heart. That's why the Buddha is so confident that we're all going to be able to walk the path. And we are. It is totally possible. So I guess I wish you all appropriate challenges. <laughs> all of us, everyone in this room. Yeah, so these are my thoughts. Are there any comments or questions? I'm reminded of one more example. Mm -hmm. the, uh, there was an event this weekend where the, here, where the teacher talked about the biodome built in uh, Arizona. Mm -hmm. trees there and the trees when they reach a certain age they fall over hmm. and all the nutrients and sunshine uh, that they needed but what they learned um, was that trees often need wind oh. to grow strong enough to grow to their full height and their full age great i should have known that for uh so should have given that example, example. yeah yeah, I'm sure their heartwood didn't develop. I mean, there's also the example of the butterfly that when it comes out of the chrysalis, it has to um, beat its wings. The, the challenge of getting out of the um, chrysalis pumps fluid over its wings. And if you open the cocoon, I guess the cocoon, if you open that and just let it out, it doesn't ever do that effort. And so 
Um, it can't fly, actually. The wings will just, this is what I was told at least. So there's a certain amount of work that has to be done, challenge that has to be met in order for the wings to function. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.